0: Thank you for joining us today for the Ministry of the Word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Greetings. It's a nice day. Especially nice for me, I guess, because it's my birthday. I'm 55 years old today. The Lord let me live, Amen. And I've been inundated by presents from the Narwhal children, uh, and I had to I had to cut it off. I had the, there was a cutoff point at one point where I told William he was going to spend all of the paper that his mother has given him to draw it in church because he was so excited he would go back and he would draw me something else, and then he would run back and draw, and I'm like, you're gonna have that's it, cut off right here. But it's a wonderful thing to, you know, have little children running up to your car and uh, people giving you commentaries like Josh did. Gave me some beautiful, beautiful Eiderman donut commentaries. I mean, uh, commentaries. But thankfully, he put it in a uh, camouflaged package so no one would know that I'm going to eat those donuts later on today. But uh, anyway, so the Lord is good. And, uh, you know, God cares about us. Uh, And he loves us enough not to let us live in our own sins. Amen? Amen. Sin is a misery. It brings darkness and uh, it brings into our lives separation from the people that we love. Our call to worship in Psalm 110 and part of our topic and what we'll be talking about today here in the church um, is going to be about this subject so Psalm 110 says that this way, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Do you know that we ourselves, even in our own flesh, we were the enemies of God. And God, we're one of the people that became the footstool of the Lord, but also he has risen us up and we are his children. Amen? The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath, and he shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies, and he shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. We've talked about this imagery before in the Psalms. It is the imagery of a warrior that's gone to battle, and he's just spent himself, and he's you know, he's defeated his enemy and he leans over when he's done into the brook to get a drink of water. That's what the picture is being shown here. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore he shall lift up his head. God will be done at some point with his enemies and he will tread them in the wine press of his wrath. Aren't you looking forward? You might go, I, I don't know, that really sounds kind of scary. I don't want to be one of the enemies of God. But aren't you looking forward to a day when all the enemies of Christ will be vanquished? Amen? That people will not be hurting each other uh, as they are today all around the world, killing each other, hurting each other, um, mistreating one another, and that people will love each other. Amen? It's going to be a great day. Uh, But today, today we are in the process of that battle and that war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let us pray today on this great day and ask God to be with us and speak to our hearts uh, through our time together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for inviting us into your home on this uh, day, Lord, for the feast of your word and the fellowship of the saints. We pray, God, that as we gather together, Lord, that we would hear and understand your word and see how it applies to us Lord, that we might today, right now, Lord, not harden our own hearts, but that we would be open to repentance and that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness and contentment rather than covetousness, Lord, which would fill it if you had not intervened. I pray today, Lord, that you would lead us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said... Standing for just a few moments here as I read to you my text from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 13. Acts chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter standing up at the eleven lifted up his voice and he said unto them, you men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. <clears throat> but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass on the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for Having your servant Luke write these words down, that we might be also witnesses of these early days in the church after you ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and fill us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to fill us and lead us and guide us, Lord, even now as we open your word. Lord, that you would speak to the hearts and the minds of those that are here, Lord, that you would lead us in repentance from our sins and faith towards you. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said. You may be seated. When we read a passage in the scriptures, we often look for the best context and uh, conjecture that we can given the information that we have before us, and we do our best to understand uh, a Bible
1: passage.
0: If we read a text from the New Testament, we often search other New Testament uh, verses and even Old Testament verses as we develop what we are convinced the passage is uh, trying to say to us. When we read the Old Testament, inevitably we must come to the New Testament to fully understand what was given to our forefathers in shadows and hints. But here in our passage today, in Acts chapter two, we are not left to guess where to look. When Peter is trying to explain to the gathering crowd what is happening around them, the Holy Spirit fills his mouth with these words, and you can re- you can say them with me. Say this is that this is that which was spoken by the prophet joel now before that jesus had told them what was coming before it came and so in this case we have abundant clarity does that make sense jesus told them what was going to happen and he explained what it was and joel foretold of what was going to happen many years ago and Peter points back and he says what you're witnessing right now what is occurring right now this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel however as clear as it should be it seems that we still uh, often have missed an important part of what is happening here in Acts chapter 2 because of the current Christian culture that we live in I don't know if if this happens to you a lot but sometimes ideas that we have in our mind cloud what we hear God's Word saying. God's Word says stuff plainly but what's in our mind Michael sometimes we hear something else right you know God's Word says this and we go oh yeah well we we know what that means but what we're doing is we're actually clouding it with what's already in our minds and there is something in the minds of Christians today that I believe clouds the ability to understand what is actually happening in Acts chapter 2. So I'm not sure how far we're going to get today through Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. But what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Joel to where Peter points his listeners telling them that this is that. And we're going to see what that is. is that, does that sound alright to you? Now, if I ask you to tell me about the book of Joel, you might not know anything about it at all. You might just go, isn't it one of them books in the Old Testament? You know, Ezra, and Nehemiah, Esther, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, how many of you guys learned, you know, how to, you know, recite this, the the, the Bible, the books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I don't know how you learned it when you were young or if you ever did, but you might just go, yeah, Joel, you know, It's one of those in there with all those other ones, right? You might not have any idea what it is about, but we're going to find out right now. So before we get to that, though, I want to recap from the beginning of Acts. Jesus had just died during the Passover, uh, and he rose from the dead three days later. As we know, he showed himself alive to his followers his disciples, those he had chosen to be his apostles even. For 40 days he did this, his time living among them and in the flesh and blood as a man was over. He had uh, been given all power in heaven and earth and now he had ascended to the Father and he had sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts and into Uh, the essence of his believers, his disciples. They were told that with this power that they would receive, they were to go out into the world preaching the gospel, this good news to the world. And the gospel was going to be a bit different though for the Jews than it was the rest of the world. Now, this is something you may not have considered. The gospel was different for one part of the population than it was the other. He told them the Holy Spirit was coming to endue them with and enclose them with the power to do what He called them to do. And He reminded them that they would need to learn to walk in the Spirit, to live in the right now, in a real relationship and communication with God. And that God was not just going to be saving the Jews, but he was going to save everyone, save everyone. That means you and me and all the Gentiles, people that aren't born over there, people that aren't sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. So the day of Pentecost came. It was 50 days after Passover. They were waiting in the upper room like Jesus had told them. And suddenly on that day, the day that God had given the law of Moses to them on top of Mount Sinai, there independence day from the world system to as they became a people their uh their great day god instead on this day delivered them something else he did not deliver them a new law for if there had been a law given that could have given life then what righteousness would have been by that law it was perfect god was delivering something else to his people in this time it was not on mount sinai Mount Sinai represents death. It was on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Yes, a fire fell here too as it had on Mount Sinai. But it had not devoured when it fell as it did when it fell on burnt offerings or even when it fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. No, it was not like that of Mount Sinai. Anyone who even touched Mount Sinai, man or beast. Do you remember this? Man or beast that touched the mountain would be what? Would be put to death or would die. Everybody say the letter kills. So are we opposed to it? No, we're not opposed to it. Jesus didn't come to do away with it. He came to do what? To fulfill it, to understand it. You see, the human mind, when it hears the law of God, applies it like a Pharisee. Applies it to the hurt of others. Applies it to the pride of our own lives. Because we love to... We love the praise of doing well. You know, look how good I did. That's what we like. And we like a a book of rules to tell us how good we've been doing. Look at this. I haven't broken any of these rules, and I'm really good at these rules. In fact, I've even more than obeyed these rules. I've even made them stricter. God told me not to walk this far on the Sabbath, and I only walk half as far. God told me not to work on the Sabbath, but I don't even carry uh, around a a tool in my pocket that I... Take the work. I'm so spiritual. God tells me to do this and do that, but I do even more. That is the heart of the Pharisee. That is not a beautiful thing because the Bible tells us that our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. This time the fire that fell on Mount Zion... There in the upper room fell on each and every one there. There were women, children, young men, and old. Individually, God is covenantal, we know this, but he's also individualistic. In his dealings with us. You know, before there was a, a big us, there were just, there was just one man, right? Adam, and he walked with God in the garden. And God didn't wait until there were thousands or hundreds or millions he had a relationship with that one man we can go wrong in both directions thinking God only deals with us as a church or as a family this is not so God deals with us as individuals and we can miss the beauty also we can go the wrong way by missing the beauty of the collective and thinking it's all just about me it's not it's a balance of both So they all, as Luke tells us, begin to speak in tongues. Now some of you may not even relate to what I'm going to say, but I think it's worth saying. Because I certainly lived a life where this was important. And uh, people talked about talking in tongues nonstop. I went to a Pentecostal church and it seemed to be kind of the main focus. I guess if you name your church Pentecostal, what, what are you? You're one to relive that event. But in the case, this tongue talking is a unique experience unlike anything that has ever happened in the history of the world. This is not happening today. People are not sitting in rooms and giant winds are rushing in and fire is resting on our head as we speak in tongues. There's no video evidence of that happening today anywhere ever, not even any reports, not even in history that I know of. This unique occurrence of this infilling of the Holy Spirit in the way that it happened on Pentecost was unique. In this instance, the things that happened there are unique. People do speak in tongues again, and we will uh, get into that as the book of Acts continues because they keep doing that, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about what it is and what it is today today. Or isn't today but it's worth mentioning that they did not work it up they did not beg for it they did not press on in prayer for a long period of time trying to get in the right frame of mind before they spoke in tongues this was actually a big part of the culture of the church that I grew up and I love the church I grew up in but there was a it was almost like Jason that you needed help getting Like delivering a baby or something and people would come to the altar and they would pray and people would get them and And put their hands on their head and they would pray with them and they would pray very loud in their ears And they would scream and they would turn the music up and they would be like, come on. We need to get it We need to get it. We need to get it Is that what happened on the day of pentecost everybody say no? In fact, do we see anything like that in the Bible anywhere ever? No, we don't In fact, you'll see that what happens in the Bible Is that while they were there and they were praying they just began to speak with other tongues they in fact They didn't even know to ask for the Holy Ghost. They weren't asking to speak in tongues. They just started doing it, right? You'll find out this happens more than once and it happens exactly that way As far as we know from scripture they did not get their hands they did not get hands laid on they weren't told to say a few words You know I visited uh, Sister Joy, I visited Oral Roberts University back in 1987 or 86 or whatever it was. If you don't know who Oral Roberts was, wow. He was one of these Pentecostal preachers and he had a big giant following. He and his son Richard Roberts had raised so much money, they built a hospital and they built this big tower. They even went up in the tower and, and said that... Uh, God was going to kill him if he didn't raise like fourteen million dollars. And I don't, you guys, you guys are too. None of you remember this. Joy is, Joy remembers it though. But before all that craziness happened, they had a really good college called ORU, which is Oral Roberts University. I went out there, and and uh, this is the first time I had seen this. People come forward to pray, and they said they wanted the Holy Ghost. And people would come down, and they would say, "All right, here's what you got to do. You need to spell Eddie." really fast e d d i e e d d i, and then and then and then it's like you know have you guys ever tried to use one of them old manual pumps you know how you get them going you pour water down in them to prime the pump to make it work so we're just going to have you say a few of these words really really fast folks that is not getting the holy ghost there was no and and what was funny is they said we're doing it just like they did in the book of acts they were always helping you prime your pump Folks, that's not in God's Word. That is not the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's something, but that's not that. Church leaders, we're not shaking them back and forth, trying to teach people how to get the Holy Ghost as they do in churches. And they do it all over the world. They do it. You don't need that. God gives us what He promises and He doesn't need us to help Him with that. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, it says, And they were all amazed, and they were in doubt, saying one to, one to another, What does this mean? Now God's people were not just going uh, to be the Jews anymore, or even just proselytes of Judaism. They were going to come from people all over the world. That was the meaning of them speaking in tongues. To hear God's word spoken in Hebrew was normal. To hear it spoken in the language of the Philistines, that, that, that was not That was not normal, right? And so here they have Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the dwellers of Mesopotamia, Romans, all these people, Cretes and Arabians. How here we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. Oh my goodness, the wonderful works of God. So the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God himself would not only dwell in one man as it had in the man Christ Jesus The fullness of God would dwell in the fullness of the church. And so now we pick up at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and we see what happens. And we get as far as we can through this chapter. Verse 13, as I read in my text to begin with, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. You see, some people were curious and they wanted to know what it meant, right? Isn't that what they asked Jason? Some people says, what means this? But there was another element in the crowd that day, Sister Joy. The curious, the spiritually curious and the devout men and women who truly wanted to know that was one. But there was this other element there as well. Are you curious, though, I want to ask you, are you spiritually curious? Do you want to know, are you looking around to see what God is doing? Are you wondering, are you asking yourself, what in the world does all this mean? Do you look at world events and do you say, what does this mean? Are you thinking about it, or are you just not really thinking at all? To be curious, to search the Scriptures, to study current events in history, we should always be asking ourselves what it meant. But here in verse 13, there were others. Everybody say there were others. There were some curious and devout who wanted to know what it meant, but then there's the others. And you might find yourself in this category too. You might be among the others. The others just made fun of it all. They begin to mock it. You know, it's easy to mock what you don't understand. It's easy to make fun of things that don't make sense to you. Amen? That's what we do sometimes. We can just laugh and think to ourselves that we're superior than others, that others are ignorant, who don't see things the way we do or experience them ours, or we could be humble and curious. What do you think God would prefer? My admonition to you today is do not be among the mockers when God begins to do things in your life even if you don't understand what you see you know I don't really like it when people say God told me this and God told me that but I'm very very careful I hope to not mock it because you know what you just don't know maybe God did tell them I met a woman one time that seemed crazier than a loon she talked about God in a way that I would never talk about God and and she was and you know what she told me God told her something well the truth is I know God told her something and That really messed me up I'd been down on my knees in prayer asking God for something and she calls me on the phone to tell me she's got What i've been praying for And I never met the woman in my life and i'll tell you what you know What I would have done if I had not been praying and she and I met that woman I would have said that woman is a loony bin from where Eversville. If she had told me the story that she told me after I came to her house, I said, uh, "Ma'am, could you tell me about how God talks to you? And she said, well, he does it when I'm on the treadmill. Now, guys, I'm telling you what, that'd be easy to make fun of. And I'll tell you what, if that woman hadn't been the answer to my prayer, I might have made fun of her too. But instead, all of a sudden this goofy woman who act like a crazy person to me, who certainly didn't seem like anybody God would take the time to talk to, God talked to her. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, there was no laughing. I was going like, huh, I don't know, maybe that's not you. I sometimes, when people tell me God tells them things, the first thing I think Tony is, yeah, right. I'm sure he did. I'm sure the God of all the universe just decided to whisper in your ear today And I honestly, I think that because I think most people uh, Make that stuff up. I do You might go I didn't know you thought like that. Well, I do I think most people to say God told them God never told him anything But I'll tell you what mocking them ain't the thing to do You you're gonna end up being wrong and you'll end up mocking God. Don't do it Here at Foundation Church right now, as God begins to do some things you don't understand, you might be tempted to mock what you know nothing about and you won't be the first. In fact, it's what most people do. In this case, they mock the followers of Jesus as a bunch of crazy drunks. Think of that. Here they are in this incredible day, one of the most incredible days in all the world that the world will celebrate for thousands of years. And they're missing it completely. They're not only missing it, but they're making fun of it. Could you imagine that? Looking back in history, going like, you know, some guy has won the $1.5 billion lottery, and he goes to your work, and he comes in, and he tells you all about it, and you're like, shut up, Leroy. Sure, you won. Sure, you're a billionaire. I'm sure you are. You goofy. Moron, you probably don't even know what the lottery is. I'm saying that is our tendency when things are unbelievable to us. Not only did they miss it, they made fun of it. How many of you want to be in that boat that you not only miss it, but you end up being a mocker? I sure don't. I think the thieves, and I say thieves plural. The thieves on the cross, most people like to talk about one of them, but not too many like to talk about the other. Well, the truth is, is they both mocked Jesus. Did you know that? You remember that? If you read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and, uh, and, and Luke, you'll find that these thieves begin to do what? They begin to mock Jesus. People were standing around. There was a sign above his head. The people that were crucified mocked him. They they read out, oh, let's put it in all the languages of the world. <laughs> king of the Jews. Let's put it in Greek and let's put it in Aramaic and let's put it in Hebrew so that everybody knows he's the king of the Jews. What were they doing? They were mocking. Not only were they mocking him, but the people that were in pain on each side of him, hanging on the cross in their own pain, they had enough energy left to make fun of him. Both of them. Everybody say, both of them. And the reason I mentioned that they both did is so that maybe if we got a mocker or two still in here, you won't think that that puts you completely outside of hope because one of those mockers Turn from being a mocker to being a believer. Amen. After the earthquake, <laughs> after things begin to happen, all of a sudden one of them goes, "I believe this is the Son of God, right? You know, God may work in your life, and at first you may even mock what God's doing. Don't be a mocker. They mocked what they did not understand, what they were missing that was going on. Had they understood what was happening on the day of Pentecost, they would have not responded as they did, as they, if they had understood what was going on in the cross, they would not have mocked. They were in their agony and in their suffering. You see, the world hurts, and what does, what do hurting people do? They hurt other people. You'll find the people that end up hurting people are people that have been hurt themselves. And over and over again, they're the mockers. They're the people that hurt. If you found yourself mocking what God is doing, you too, though, can repent. As one of those thieves did and who was with our Lord in paradise. Be humble, stay curious, and repent when you find that you've missed it. The Jews as a whole totally missed that God had sent their Messiah, and many mocked Jesus. In fact, most people did mock Jesus, believe it or not. Can you you imagine in history looking back and go, God himself came in the flesh to save me, and I spent my time making fun of him and his followers like they were a bunch of goofballs. Verse 14, but Peter standing up at the 11, lifted up his voice and he said unto them, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. So here we have Peter, the thrice denying apostle who even cursed and said he didn't even know who Jesus was even once rebuked by Jesus, referring to him or the motivation behind what Peter was saying as Satan. Could you imagine Jesus referring to you as Satan? That Wouldn't that be a little disconcerting to you? One thing I like about Peter is even though he denied the Lord, even though he failed, even though Jesus called him the devil once, <laughs> I love what he, he says, where? where, where, where? Remember, he looks at Peter and says, are you going to, Are you going to leave me also? What does he say? Where can I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And even as weak as he was and as messed up as he was, God kept calling him back and calling him back and calling him back. We get Peter standing up. He's not hiding anymore. He's not mocking anymore. He's not, he's not, uh, hasn't lost his, his, his faith this time. He's standing up to lead the 11 in a bold response. And here we have something that has never happened like this in the history of the world. The first Holy Ghost-filled sermon after God had poured out His Spirit. It wasn't a temporary thing. It was a filling. The first Holy Ghost-filled sermon ever preached. Now listen to me and I'll tell you what it means, Peter said. I'll tell you what it's not. Verse 15 for these are not, everybody say they're not, they're not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it as but the third hour of the day. For those of you that want to know what the third hour of the day, that's nine o'clock in the morning, their, their day begin at 6 a.m., the first hour, nine o'clock in the morning. He addresses the mockers' assumption that they were drunk by pointing out the time of the day. People get drunk all the time, but most drinking and drunkenness happens at night. As the scriptures say, they that are drunk are drunken in the night. But the Bible says, cast off the work of darkness and walk in the light. You might find that you, if you are given to drunkenness or given to uh, needing to get high once in a while, you'll find that most of that And a lot of that might happen all the time, but at nighttime is when the need arises the most. Perhaps some of the curious, even some of the mockers that day were both changed. Could you imagine the conversion story if there was one of them who accused all the apostles and the 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 followers of christ of being drunk because you know what's getting ready to happen is when after paul's done with the sermon three thousand of those people are going to change their lives but some of them amy were they were the people going what are you guys a bunch of drunken fools they were there that's what they were doing but they were there don't dismiss the mockers let them come around the ones who don't come around are the ones that aren't going to get anything sometimes with the mockers that are coming around god He's brought them around, even in their mocking, to change them. Verse 16, but this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Here we go now. They aren't drunk, but this is what you are seeing and hearing was foretold hundreds of years ago by a prophet named Joel. The Jews there would have known very well this little three-chapter book of prophecy that Joel offered that was part of the law of God. They would have known that Joel, Amos, and Obadiah called the minor prophets by Bible scholars not only because they had, uh, not because they had little to offer, but because of the brevity of their words. They were written in the days leading up to the great judgment by God on his people. And it was called the Day of the Lord. Everybody say the Day of the Lord. Wonderful for some, But dreadful for others, Jason. Not everyone is excited when a king returns to his kingdom after being gone. Right? Those who hate him, uh, what's going to happen to them? Well, they're going to be crushed. Those who were not faithful to doing what he had told them to do, what do you think they could expect? Judgment. Judgment. But those who followed him faithfully would rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So the day of the Lord was quite a mixture of joy and dread as it will be again one day at the second coming of Christ. God's enemies will be crushed finally once and for all and God's people will ever be delivered from the despotism of men in their own flesh and be free in the eternal city of God, the new Jerusalem. So for the Jews, the day of the Lord, which Joel mentioned several times and is quoted again by other prophets, is a familiar familiar thing. This was not brought up by Peter for the first time. They knew what the day of the Lord was. They heard about the day of the Lord. And the last time they heard about the day of the Lord, it was a horrendous, horrible, terrible uh, day. We hear about the day of the Lord, and we're like, the day of the Lord! Woo! They hear about the day of the Lord, and they're like, the day of the Lord? Oh, dear God! Because on the day of the Lord that came in Joel's time was a day that the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the, the, the ungodly, people that God had raised up to judge Israel came and decimated and destroyed and took them captive. The day of the Lord was a day of reckoning and judgment of judgment that came because nothing else would do. God showed them wonders. He showed them signs. He offered them a little bit of, uh, uh of trials here and there, hoping that those trials would, would bring them or, or uh, bring them to a place when I say hoping that I, I don't think that's a good word to use about God, but God, what should have happened or could have happened. It's like, it's like, you ever bring your children a little bit of discipline and you're like, certainly they'll learn, right? Has it ever happened to you, Tim? You know, you, you're like, all right, I got to get serious with the kids. And so you, you like, give them a little correction, you know, and then, and like, you give them a little bit more a little, in your mind, you're going like, they're like going to make me like you know, ground them for life. Like, like, is that what it's going to take? You ever ever ask yourself that? Like, what's it going to take to get this to turn around? This is what's going on here in Joel chapter two. Joel, the son of Pethuel, as it says in the opening verses of Joel, was a prophet of God sent to prophesy to Judah. Judah, not a person, but a place. At this time, when Joel prophesied the nation of Israel was a divided kingdom, the northern part was called Israel. And it was all the tribes of Israel but Judah and one other one. Anybody know what it was? Tribe of Benjamin. So Judah and Benjamin actually were the size of half the country, and, or half the, of all of Israel was just Judah and Benjamin. They had a lot of land, and they had the city of Jerusalem. As he was preaching, God had sent a great famine to them. Locusts, canker worms, caterpillars, palmer worms. But, and I, there's a whole thing I can preach all about it. It's all the different stages of life of this horrible plaguing insect that destroys everything and the future of everything and it's horrible. But I'll focus in on these words of Joel 2.25. This is what God said. This was my great army which I sent Among you, I don't know if you do. You guys ever see the little house on the prairie when the when the locust plague comes? Everybody, and the sky is what? The sky is blackened out, right? And they can't see. And The locusts are landing. I don't know if you've ever read about real accounts of what this is like when they come in Such a swarm that the sky is blackened out and you can't see and you're in darkness in the middle of the day And they come and they eat every single thing and they're in your house And they're in everything and they're you, this is what a plague of locusts is like and it's happened in America It's happened all around the world more than once. It is a horrible 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 experience And you know how God describes it Jonathan my army? My army, which I sent, Joel 2.25. We can't go through the whole book, even though it is short, but suffice it to say, and you can certainly read it for yourselves, that the day of the Lord for them was not going to be a good day. It was a day of harsh judgment, the likes of which they had never seen. You see, the locusts that came, that God had sent, they were not the judgment. They were the judgment before the judgment. And the book of Joel says, I sent them because I thought that if you, if this happened to you, this would inspire you to straighten up and to change your lives. But it did not. And so as a result, I'm going to send you something that you're not going to be able to ignore. Oh, you know plagues happen. I mean, this happens every so often. I mean, we're just going to get through this. I mean, no. He wanted them to go. We need to repent. What have we done wrong? What have, what is God calling us to do? They're like, yeah, you know, they happen every so many years. We just, you know, it's what happens. You know, and God's like, yeah, it's what happens when I send them. I when they're my army and they come and they do. Yeah, that, that's when they come. It's the, life is not coincidental. I'm God. And when all your crops get eaten, it was me that did it. And they they did not like to think like that. Joel was telling them that they should have repented and still with prayer and fasting when all of these horrible things had happened, but they didn't. This is what Joel's talking about. I'm like, well, I thought Joel was exciting. I thought Joel was amazing. Like, we're in the day of Pentecost. And he's going, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. I bet you if we read the book of Joel, it's going to be great. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a picture of the most wonderful, fun day in the world where flames are coming down on people's heads and they're speaking in tongues and people are coming to Christ and, and we're baptizing people. That's not what Joel's talking about. They were told the judgment day was coming and the day of the Lord was coming. And everybody say, and it did. It was after these words that the Assyrians came and did their worst. They destroyed the holy city. They took many uh, Israelites captive to Babylon. As so, as with many of the prophets, their words not only applied to the days that they were living in, but whether they understood it or not, they spoke of a foreshadowing of days that were coming. You'll see this time and time again in the Word of God, the prophecies that were warning them about the coming judgment in in their day back in like 586 B.C. They applied exactly to the day that they were living in because those events were foreshadowing the events were going to come. There would be another day when God would come and He would send His armies and they would destroy Jerusalem. That day was about to come again. Can you see the parallel? Because it is exactly what happens. What happens during this time is this. Joel's prophecy says we see do this and Peter explains how. Within Joel's warning of impending doom, there was also a message of hope that would eventually happen. Just like Jeremiah had said God was going to judge you, but it wasn't going to cast you off forever. It would be for your salvation. Ultimately, Joel's words, however, contain some very unique things that I'm sure the Jewish people had always wondered what they meant. So for you note-takers, I see we have note-takers. For you note-takers, the day of the Lord is introduced in Joel chapter 1, verse 15, as a day, everybody say, of horrible devastation, as well as a greater future judgment. I mean, could you imagine this, Christina? Uh, Just to let you know, the day of the Lord's coming this horrible thing that's more horrible than anything you can imagine that just happened to you it's bad but it's not really anything compared to what's coming i mean like is that something, like something exciting you're what happened the day of the lord Woo. no amos five eighteen through 20 zephaniah 1 7 through 13 declared the day of the lord to be judgment against god's people In chapter 2, verse 11 of the book of Joel, he described the day of the Lord as a dreadful, quote, dreadful day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day where the Lord himself would lead his army against his people. How many people want God leading an army against you? Not me. The second part of Joel focuses on the day of the Lord being a day of judgment on God's enemies as well. So there's a two-part judgment. I wouldn't really be worried about what he's going to do to the enemies if I knew he was coming to do something to me. Be like, well, yeah. His people would end up ultimately being blessed and protected, as it says in Isaiah chapter 13. Jeremiah 46 and Ezekiel 25, always before God does the thing that he does, where he brings the ultimate blessing, there comes a judgment precedes the blessing. And this same exact thing happened in the time of Christ. The second theme of Joel is repentance, calling on young and old men and women, leaders and followers, and even those who might otherwise be exempted from community responsibilities. He called on the nursing mothers. He called on newlyweds that were normally not even required to do anything. He required on them to return to God and forsake their sin. He called on them to mourn over their sins, weeping and crying out to the Lord and fasting to put their flesh in submission and to do it from their hearts, not just out of fear or from ritual, but out of a true contrition. This is what Joel's talking about. This is what the day of the Lord was. In Joel 2.13, he reminded them something we say every week. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. I don't know if you discipline your children, and when you do and they're crying, you're, you tell them, I, I, I love you, that's, that's why I'm doing this. We make fun of that, but it's true. You know, you do it because you love them. You don't want them, you don't want their lives destroyed. You don't want them having to live in with the consequences of the life of sin. At the same time, Joel stressed the possibility of repentance lies not with them, though, but with God. He told them they would not even be able to repent if he did not grant them the ability or the desire to do it, that he exercised his power even over their ability to repent. Repent. So there's the book of Joel. Isn't that exciting? You guys all excited about the book of Joel? Want to do a study on that? We get in Acts chapter two, verse 17. He begins to quote it. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This is a direct quote from Joel chapter two, verse 28. What God had for his people would be Covenantal, but it also would be individual. I think that is why in the book of Acts, they said when everyone was gathered in the upper room, it said there were, the apostles were there, right? And it says, and the women were there, and there were, everybody was there. There was men, there was women, there was children, they were all gathered together, just like we see in this work of art on our slide today. God was restoring his relationship with mankind, one man, woman, child at a time. And this would be on everyone, including their servants, as we will see in the next verse. Not only would God do this for every member of their family, young and old, he would do this even for the slaves that were in their house. Verse 18 On my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. It won't just be one man. It won't just be one prophet here and there. It won't just be the high priest or the tribe of Levi. It won't just be the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah. It won't just be John the Baptist or Jesus. Every man, woman, and child, young and old, will begin to speak the words of God because the Spirit of God will fill them as it filled the prophets of old on those special occasions. It will fill all of God's people all of the time. And the words that they speak will be my words. The Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. It's going to be poured into them so that it comes out. It flows out of those in whom it resides. We are watered, filled up like a cup, but the flow of the Spirit is not a one and done thing it becomes a spring of living water picture yourself as a, a as a cup and picture the holy spirit it's not just going to happen to you uh, it's not just something that happens to you in an altar experience and and you've got it it lasts for a little while like a battery that needs to be recharged we grew up in the church and they would say you know you've backslidden and you need to get refilled remember that honey we got to get refilled and we'd say oh uh, sister Andrea got refilled tonight she got refilled and they would and everyone is gathered around and they prayed for Andrea because she got refilled the Bible tells us that if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit that he fills you and he keeps filling you so picture yourself like this cup okay picture yourself that the Holy Spirit is coming down and as it's flowing in you what's happening to your cup Titus it's spilling out and spilling out and spilling out and if the flow is from god is it ever going to run out the source isn't you the source isn't how good you've been doing amy the source isn't the works that you put into it the source is almighty god it's the never-ending power of the holy spirit from heaven that it does not run out the wells of salvation come out we become rivers of living water We flow by speaking God's word. That's what prophesying is. When we speak, God is speaking. I'm not saying that all of our words are His words any more than every word of every prophet was. Like them, though, we are vessels of clay, as the Bible says, right? For we have this treasure in earthen vessels. They live. Do you know people live because they are around you? If you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, people live; they come to life because of you. God fills you, and it overflows out of you into them. That's how it works. What what did Paul say? One plants, one waters, and God gives the increase. The Bible tells us that we us. You know, what did Jesus say? Out of us will flow rivers of what kind of water? Living water. It's not just for ourselves. It's for all of those that God puts us around. They live because God speaks life into them through us. They walk in the garden in the cool of the day when they walk with us. You might go, well, I don't, that really doesn't really describe me. It can You can be filled with the Holy Spirit and your words can be a blessing to others. Your life can be a watering for others. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Are you starting to see this analogy here? You might've read in Acts chapter two, what in the world is he quoting from? Now notice they're pouring out of the spirit as it is in Joel. It comes prior to the judgment. Yes, judgment was coming on those that refused to repent. Remember John the Baptist's message was this, repent, right? What did he say? The ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't give, bring forth fruit is cast down and thrown where? Into the fire. But then he told them that received it, he said, guess what? Hey, he's going to baptize you. I baptize you with the baptism of repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There was at this time in Israel's history, not only was this going on figuratively, it was going on literally. Josephus, the historian, records odd signs in the earth. Things were happening, eclipses, you know, things were happening with the sun, with the moon, you can read about the details of all that. I really believe that what God was showing is, yes, there were some of these warnings that were coming, but the warnings were coming. And when I was reading Calvin's commentary about this, he goes, he goes when you see the dark clouds, you're not wondering if it's going to rain, right? It's getting ready to rain. It's not like the whole sky's black and they're coming in and the lightning's coming and you're going, maybe it's gonna go around. Like, no, like you're, you, as far as you can see, it's coming. Verse twenty: The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord. History records these things that happened, but it was a warning to God, a warning by God to His people. Verse twenty-one: And it shall come to pass that he, that, and it shall come to pass. I have no idea. I know this verse, and right here, it's not even written out right. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, when we hear this thing, they shall be saved, we often think of you know, campground or revival meeting and I want to focus on this shall be saved because I think that this is this Christian culture that I think that blinds us to what's actually happening in Acts chapter two Christian culture says people get saved you know my my cousin Johnny went down to church and he he got saved last night right you anybody used to that kind of language anybody hear that from your relatives from your cousins from they got saved Well, how'd they get saved? Well, they went down and they repeated the Lord's prayer or they said a prayer or whatever they did. But you have to understand in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is not talking about coming to an altar. It's not about getting saved at all. And the way that I put it to the deacons up here is if you found out that, you know, there was some horrible thing coming your way and it was a horrible destruction, What is it that you are asking? You're wanting to be saved from that, right? Coming up in 16 verses, the Jews are going to gather around the upper room and they're going to ask Peter after this sermon. They're going to say, what must we do to be saved? He tells them to repent just like Joel does, but he gives them even more. But in the meantime, let's talk about this phrase, shall be saved. Peter is quoting Joel chapter two, and in this instance, what does it mean to be saved? Anybody know? If there's great destruction and everyone's going to be burned and destroyed, if you're asking to be saved, are you asking to be born again, Sister Joy? If you're the Jews, or are you just saying, I don't want to be a part of Jerusalem getting leveled to the ground and I don't want to die, isn't this? It's a practical salvation, right? Save me from this disastrous judgment that is coming. You've just been told God's coming. He's coming with great power to inflict horrendous judgment upon in the form of an army that will devastate them. The way that I put it here when I wrote this is if I told you there was a mile wide tornado coming like the one that hit Xenia. You would be saying, where can I, wh- wh- is there somewhere I can go? You're like, Get in the basement, get in the, get under the ground, do something. This is what you must do to not get swept away in the storm." Peter then brings Joel's words to bear on the present day. It's getting real for them in a way that they become very uncomfortable with. Sometimes when we hear God's word, we should get very uncomfortable. We should become very motivated. You know, if someone tells you you need, you know, uh, hurricane shutters, or you need a, a, a storm shelter, or you need a basement, it's all one thing. But when you see a black tornado a mile wide coming on the horizon, you're like... You're very motivated right now to do something right now, right? Where? Whoa! Right? That's what's happening. Sometimes when we hear God's word, we should get very motivated, very ready to fall down before him with mourning and crying and repentance and fasting. This is what God told them should have happened to them when the first thing happened to them, but it didn't. So the question to ask us is, do we really need for God to turn up the heat on us and devastate us to get us to turn from our sins or should we be sensitive to his correction? Anybody know the right answer to that? Should we be sensitive to God's correction or should we wait till God completely wipes us out, Tony? What should we do? It's about to get real for you here in this room just like it did for them. We do not have to learn the hard way. Those who belong to God cannot live in sin. The Bible says it's a fact. If you do, you should fully expect your day, the day of the Lord to come. And I can tell you with assurance of Joel and Peter that if you live in sin and you act like you're a follower of God and you think that you're his child, you better understand that judgment begins at the house of God. And if you're living in sin today, it's time for you to repent. He starts dealing with the sin that they committed. And we're going to be talking about the sins that you're living in. Verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you all, as you know well. Now guys, I'm going to tell you what, I've done some bad things in my life and these Jews have done some bad things in your life. But when the Son of God Himself comes in the flesh, the Messiah comes, and He comes to save the world, and what you do is kill Him, I think you've done the worst that you could ever do, right? Killing somebody's bad, killing God in the flesh, the perfect Son of God, rejecting a man who was by every instance in your own vision, in your own mind, in your own knowledge, He was a miracle worker, He was doing incredible deeds, and you know he was doing them, and you kill him. They knew the things that he had done could not be denied. It says in the word that his proofs were infallible. You remember, you heard from our reading today in Acts chapter 3. They're like, nobody could deny what happened because for the last 50 years, the man had been by the gate beautiful. I was sitting here thinking after this was read, do you know how many times Jesus passed this man on the way to the temple? I, I, I literally wanted to figure it out. I wanted to count how many times Jesus passed this man in three and a half years of his ministry to him, never healed the man. It's a whole nother thought, whole nother sermon. But nobody could deny, because the man was above, he hadn't been sitting there, he said the man was above, I believe, 50 years old, and he'd been there the whole time, and everyone knew it, everyone had seen him, everyone knew him by name, everyone recognizing, and now he's leaping and praising God, they were in, they were undeniable. His proofs were infallible, meaning he made it so clear that everyone was without excuse. They knew he was a miracle worker. They knew demons fled from him. They knew he was sent from God. And he's saying, you sitting here today know well that God is a God is real. You know it. God has shown up in your life. God has answered your prayers. God has delivered you time and time again. And you know God's real. You're no different than these people are. you know you belong to him and you know you can't serve him and sin at the same time and yet we think his patience will endure forever but it will not i'm here today calling on you to repent just as peter called on these men god is calling on you today to repent you do not want to do what these men did You're not guilty of crucifying the Son of God in in, in flesh, but the Bible says that when you know Christ and when you continue in sin, you crucify the Son of God afresh. When you live in your drunkenness and your addiction and your adultery and you live in sin and your secret sins that you try to hide from everyone else, you're no different than those. The Bible said you crucify the Son of God afresh as a Christian when you live in sin. Well, this is not a very nice thing to say on your birthday. It's the nicest thing I could ever say to you. Repent. Turn from your sins. God will abundantly pardon. Confess your sins. Forsake your sins and come to Christ. That's what Peter preached to them. And it's what I'm preaching to you today. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands you have crucified Him and slain Him. Could you imagine these men, Tim, standing there realizing that the Son of God, they had killed this man? He wasn't just a prophet, he was the Son of God? You talk about scared, they were scared. It was God's plan all along, but you carried it out on behalf of the devil and in rebellion to God. It was you that killed an innocent man. It was you who killed the Messiah of Israel. I'm telling you right now, if you think this was a gentle sermon that came forth from Peter on that day, you are not listening, you are not, he is telling them you are guilty and good judgment is coming and you should be terrified because God's judgment is not going to stay forever and he's going to wipe you off the face of the earth as he does everyone who does not repent. The axe is laid at the tree, as John the Baptist preached. Do you guys want the axe laid at the root of your tree? Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible. So not only were they scared, but the one that they would put to death, the innocent man, and they put to death, he was risen from the dead, and he was real, and he was coming back in power. That would be pretty scary. Imagine if the guy you put to death, the guy that you falsely accused, the guy that you imprisoned, the guy that you did, he rose from the dead. Would you be excited to see him? Your plan and the devil's plan did not work. He's no longer dead. In fact, he cannot die. He is life itself. You have to understand Peter was not playing just as I am on the piano and telling sad stories for 10 minutes, trying to get people to come to the altar. He was telling them about the sins they had committed, about the judgment that was coming their way because of it. Peter was a fire and brimstone preacher, and he was preaching it that day right down their throats. He did the same thing in Acts chapter 3. When you heard it read earlier, he's telling them, you killed the Messiah. Verse 25, for David David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Peter keeps on preaching after he has delivered the most devastating blow to the pride within them that had rejected the Messiah. He delivers combination after combination to the body and to the head like a prize fighter attacking their sin and their pride shaking them free of their own security. I hope today as you're hearing these words, you are not hiding in your own falsehood that somehow you can just continue to sin and God is not going to care about it. God does care about it. And he loves you and as assuredly as he loves you, he will not allow you to live in sin. Peter keeps on preaching. We're going to have to end our journey through the book of Acts here until next week. But I pray today that someone will end their fight against God, the hiding of their sin, the dragons they keep alive in the forest alone where no one else knows about them. And I pray today is a day that you put it to death, that you bring it to God and offer it to God. I know there are several people here today God is calling on. God would not have given me A strong message like this for you had he not been. As it says in the book of Hebrews, when he calls, we should answer, we should harden on our hearts until God's judgment comes so severe that they scar us the rest of our lives. I'm calling on somebody here today to repent. This is that which was spoken in Acts chapter 2 and that's what it was about. It was about repentance. It was about humility. It was about surrender. It was about turning from our own selves and our own wisdom to God.
1: The song comes to mind. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look for. His merciful face And the things of earth Will grow strange leading In the light of your glory and grace
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.